I'm Maya Chupkov, and I'm a woman who stutters. Welcome to Proud Stutter, a show about stuttering and embracing verbal diversity in an effort to change how we talk about it, one conversation at a time. Welcome back to Proud Stutter. Happy Stuttering Awareness Month. We are so excited for International Stuttering Awareness Day, which is happening on a Saturday this year, October 22nd. All October long, Proud Stutter is partnering on a campaign to raise more stuttering awareness with Facetronomy. Our campaign is called Stuttertober. Every Tuesday and Thursday, all month long, we will be sharing a story and an artwork from a person who stutters, from a rapper to a bus driver. Part of the campaign includes a pre-released bonus episode of Proud Stutter. All you have to do is sign up to access the freebie. Also, we'll be giving away raffle prizes, including stuttering-themed posters, artwork, and more in honor of Stuttering Awareness Month. More details on proudstutter.com. We look forward to having you join us to spread more stuttering awareness. All right, now let's get to today's interview. We are interviewing today the wonderful Gina Chin Davis. She's a writer and filmmaker, and she stutters. She wrote, produced, and directed the award-winning feature film, I Can't Sleep, which won Best Script at the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival and Best Sci-Fi Film at the Midwest Weird Fest. Joining me in interviewing Gina is Bay Area's Stuart Shuffman, also known as Broke Ass Stuart. He's a friend of mine. He's a writer, performer, TV host, newspaper columnist. Gina, I'm really curious um, if you have a pivotal moment in your stuttering journey that you can tell us about. I think for me, a pivotal moment when I was about 12. So I started stuttering when I was maybe around four, but I still stuttered. (laughs) And um, for the most part, I was able to kind of hide it, which was a blessing and a curse. One time I remember um, I was calling information. You guys remember information. (laughs) Yep. Um, (laughs) And I was 12, but I couldn't say the name of the town. And my dad was with me. This was on one of those old big cell phones too. We were driving one of those big cell phones and the information person hung up on me because they couldn't hear me. And I remember being really upset and telling my dad, you know, I just want to be able to speak. He got like really worried about me at that point and he got me into speech therapy again. And I went and did another round of speech therapy. I got more practice in terms of hiding my stutter or being able to pass this fluent, but I still stuttered and I still do today. (laughs) But, you know, that's kind of like, I think that was a pivotal moment where my family was like, we want to get involved in helping you not stutter anymore. That was what they felt was best at the time. And I think I also felt it was best at the time, although... My, my story continued after that, and I still stuttered, so I had to keep dealing with that. <laughs> so a um, couple things. First off, uh, isn't it crazy how the 411 was basically like the internet before the internet? You could just call and ask any question. They somehow knew it. I know. Um, b- besides that, though, 
Um, now, now, as someone who doesn't uh, necessarily stutter, how do what what skills or what um what tools did you use to cope with stuttering and to 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 be able to hide it and pass? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I'll kind of break down the tools from speech therapy first. And um, so, I did yeah fluency shaping therapy. I recall. Let me see if I can remember the four tenets of it. <laughs> are um, diaphragmatic breathing. So breathing from your diaphragm, not from your upper chest. I remember um, that. <laughs> you remember that? Okay, so you were there. Um, <laughs> yes, it's there. Yeah, so we did a lot of just diaphragmatic breathing, sitting on your back and breathing, practicing breathing from your diaphragm. And then um, easy onset. So instead of hitting the words like smack, smack, <laughs> hitting them hard, you kind of roll into them so slowly kind of and then and then the third is um slow rate so going speaking at a slower rate like that and then phonation which i believe i just demonstrated to some extent but like kind of blurring it's kind of blurring your sounds together Blurring your sounds together like that. But you're supposed to get so good at it that you can speed it up and talk like this. And, <laughs> um, uh, and did, did it help? You know, in some situations, yes. Like, and to be honest, I do still sometimes use some of those skills if I'm really in a jam, you know, like, if I can't get a word out, I'm like, maybe I'll just try to slide into it with my breath or something like that. And so sometimes they do. The problem is they are not foolproof and you don't know when they're going to fail or when they're going to work. So you can't necessarily walk into, and I'm sure my speech therapist at that time would disagree very strongly, but trust me, I speak from 30 plus years experience. Um, you, you, you can't walk into a speech, um, your valedictorian speech, not that I was valedictorian, but you can't walk into that being like, oh, don't worry, I've got this. The tools, I just have to use the tools and it's gonna be fine. Even though that's what, what everyone was telling me, they were like, oh, you have your tools. You shouldn't stutter anymore. The truth is stuttering does not, <laughs> it doesn't always wanna cooperate with your tools. And I think people don't understand that. Um, so yeah, those were the four tenets of fluency shaping. Now I also combined that with lots of other little tricks, like I'm sure you guys talked about, like secondaries. If I can't say a word, I'll start with saying like, um, or like, I use like a lot. I was into the Valley Girl thing. Once mm -hmm. I figured out Valley Girl was a talking thing, I was like, mm, this will work and I can pass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And I was using like all the time and people were like, why, why are you saying like so much? So it was, uh, so yeah, lots of secondaries, um, tricks, saying I had to go to the bathroom when it was gonna be my time to read an English class, things like that. And yeah, it was, it's a stressful existence. Hmm. Gina, how was growing up with your stutter, you said that your um, parents had put you in speech therapy. Were you always open about your stutter with them? You know, it was really confusing for me because when I was a kid, so I had that second round of speech therapy with the big fluency shaping stuff. 
And um, I and everyone else around me all through those years, all through my teen years, was like, oh yeah, like I cured my stutter. <laughs> everyone wanted to believe it. I felt like, yeah, I pretty much um, don't stutter anymore, but I always felt it was my fault because I wasn't like working hard enough at the tools or something like that. And I was like, if I just work hard enough, I, I really will be cured, but I was working real hard. So, um, and I think, you know, for me, um, I got to college, I had some stuttering, you know, mishaps there <laughs> and people didn't know that I stuttered. I didn't share that with people really. Um, I shared it with maybe a couple friends and that was it. And then, but then when I went to graduate school, I was really nervous about stuttering and I ended up um, joining the NSA and meeting my stuttering community then because I was like, I need support. And that's when I started slowly, very slowly coming out about my stutter. I mean, I was still really covert at the time, but that was, I think, the turning point, getting involved in the NSA and experiencing like a different way that people relate to their stuttering. Maya, when did you come out with your stutter? Because I feel like I've known you for a few years and I... I didn't even know that you stuttered until you started this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I didn't come out about my stutter until really the podcast. Um, I did confide in a few friends. And when I told them, they had the same reaction. Like, oh, I've known you for so long. Like, I didn't notice. And it's funny because I had a conversation with my aunt Carol, who I haven't seen in like five ish years. And everyone was like, oh, wow, like your podcast. I didn't realize you had a stutter or that it was very um, like they knew I had a stutter because my mom would sometimes talk about it with the family, but they didn't realize it was like this huge thing that weighed me down. Um, and so what they said was they just noticed that I paused a lot. Hearing my aunt Carol say that, that she, she didn't think it was stuttering. She just thought I was pausing a lot just made me realize like there's probably so many people out there that really don't have no idea a person stutters and they assume it's just a pause or they're not able to like think as quickly or who knows but there's so many assumptions out there do, do you all find this is a question for both of you do you find that um when you like drink or like you know like do something intoxicating do you find you stutter more or less not a big drinker because i'm you know i'm 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 half asian so i turn <laughs> and then pass out <laughs> but in the times that i have i don't i i don't notice much of a difference for me, I don't know about you, Maya. Yeah, for me, I don't notice it as much. It's kind of like I kind of just let go more and the alcohol makes me just not think about my stutter as much. So I could be stuttering all night, but I guess the alcohol just makes me um, less aware of, of my stutter in that way. So it's interesting because I've heard other people say that they – because of their stutter, um, alcohol actually makes them more fluent. But I'm wondering if it's ju it just makes them more okay with their stutters because the alcohol kind of 
releases the tension a little bit and all the, those thoughts in your head. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it makes people maybe less self-conscious. Exactly. In general. Yeah, I, I want to talk, Gina, a little bit about um, what drew you to film? You are a filmmaker that has, has won multiple awards. And I'm, I'm curious on whether or not your film career has anything to do with your stuttering journey. And if so, how? Oh, yeah. Um, I think it's definitely, it's definitely intertwined. Um, so for film, so since I was a really little kid, I was into writing. Like that was my thing. I mean, I was really little. I wrote my first story when I was like really young, like four maybe. And I was into stories and I kept writing all through school. And um, that's what kind of kept me sane, you know? And I, I think that writing was a way of expression first and foremost for me that didn't involve speaking. And I felt like, I think I always felt compelled even as a child to share things with people to communicate with people to share stories i don't know to, to like have that creative connection and so writing was the way that i did it and i always thought i would be writing but when i was about 13 my dad so my, my dad worked many years in uh, television producing writing directing he had this this job this this shoot he was doing for a, a week for this project and I remember it was like right before holiday break in December and I was in eighth grade and I hated school. So he he actually let me skip school for the week and be a PA on the set for the week, which was really cool. <laughs> and I was kind of like, yeah, I'll, I'll get out of school. I'm like, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. And I ended up really, I, I, I realized that I really liked being on the set. Um, I just liked the energy of being on a set. and. I like the collaboration. One of the actors was my age. It was like another 13 year old girl. So I kind of connected with her too. And I liked being helpful. And um, that was when I kind of was like, huh, maybe, maybe I would like to do this kind of thing as well, like tell stories in this visual way. Um, and then the year after, I saw this movie that changed my life. <laughs> That made me want to make films, which was uh, Rushmore by Wes Anderson. Um, classic. 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 It was so it was <laughs> so random how I came upon that movie too. I just I had not I, I had not heard of it, but I was at Blockbuster one one weekend, and they had these um, weekly newsletters about here are some new films coming out you should see and. I read about Rushmore and like what it was about. And I was like, Ooh, this sounds interesting. So I watched it and I, and I fell in love with that movie. I remember like watching the movie was like, Whoa, I, Oh, this is like a kind of movie that I would like to make or something like that. So, um, at that point I started making films. Like I joined, um, like the AV film and video class at my school that they had. And I learned how to edit and things like that. And I started making films. I started writing screenplays and things like that, um, which was cool because my dad was doing that stuff. Like he writes screenplays. And so he kind of could introduce me and um, teach me about it a bit. True, yeah, what drew me to film, I think, I love music as well, too. <laughs> it's interesting because my mom's in music publishing, <laughs> very into music. My whole family loves loves music. And I think that for in, in a weird way, this might sound strange, but I think like film is 
is a way to combine music and writing for me. Because um, I think music plays a really, really big role in my stories and the stories that I choose to tell. And I think like being able to convey and share and influence emotion, like music has that capability, especially when it's combined with a visual medium. And I think, I, I think at the end of the day, that's what drew me to film. Yeah, and it's just another way of expressing yourself that's not to do with talking, <laughs> which is nice, I think, you know, and it's not that I don't like to talk. It's just that um, I feel like my ex experience with talking has been kind of a struggle my whole life. And it's nice to have an area of your life where you can express yourself without that same struggle. Although there's there's lots of other struggles, but but, you know, without that same same struggle. It's like a free area to say and convey what you want to communicate to others. That's fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> so I know representation is a big theme in your creative projects. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk more about that and the intersectionality um, that's um, important when we talk about stuttering and just storytelling in general. Yeah, um, intersectionality is really interesting to me. So I'm, um, my mother's Chinese American, my father's African American. And, uh, you know, growing up, this was just my family, you know, <laughs> like I didn't think anything of it. When Once I went out into the world, that's when I started getting feedback about like, oh, you have this different kind of family, you're, you're different, you're, um, you're mixed. Like I, I didn't even hear the word mixed until I was like eight or something like that. And I was like, what does that mean? Because we just never really, like, you know, my parents taught me and my sister to be proud of our heritage or, you know, history on both sides and everything like that. But it wasn't that big of a deal <laughs> in in my family. And I'm talking like my extended family, so cousins, aunts, uncles, stuff like that. It wasn't a big deal. But yeah, when you go out into the world, that's when people start to have issues kind of or start to give you feedback and you start to say like, oh, I, I think I'm, I'm different. Um, and I think you can maybe tie that, you can draw some parallels between that and like the different models of disability, you know, like the social model of disability is just like society should adapt to everyone having like diversity and different needs. I think that, you know, it's a reflection on our society that we think like one way is normal and another way is abnormal or different. There are some parallels with that. Like also, if people didn't have negative reactions to stuttering, I think we would all feel feel differently about stuttering, you know, like we would like, and, I, and so I think it's kind of like the idea, like, okay, well, do I have to fix my stuttering so I can be normal like everyone else? Or does society have to kind of catch up? And that's what was so cool about the National Stuttering Awareness Week being, you know, um, I know you, you brought that into law <laughs> or like you made it official in the city of San Francisco. And I do think that, yeah, and, and by this podcast too, it's about educating people so that what they, you know, what maybe they thought was weird or abnormal in the past isn't so weird or abnormal um, if they're educated and, and they can take and actually apply and integrate that knowledge, which they have to do. That's part of it. 
you know, I didn't see many mixed Asian, African-American people on screen or whatever, on film. Probably, you know, I, 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 I still don't, to be honest. I don't see that many. And I definitely didn't see that many stuttering representations on film either. Um, the ones that I saw were negative. So what are the types of stories and projects do you want to create now that you're kind of getting into the groove of your filmmaking? I think for me, what I want to create in the films and the media that I create is kind of similar to how I felt growing up before I had my interaction with the world, which is like, it's just there. It's normal. And let's say there's a movie where the main character stutters. Like, I think it would be groundbreaking to not even address the stutter and have the other characters just respond like, okay, yeah, I'm going to listen to you. I'm not going to be like, oh, you stutter. I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say the word stutter. Basically. Like, that's what I kind of want to see. And same thing with race and, you know, everything else. Uh, you know, I just, I just want to see it on there. Like it's the most normal thing. We don't have to make a big deal about it. We don't even have to call it out. We just want to normalize it just being there because I think that's, you know, that was my experience in life and I think that could benefit a lot of people. And what was it like making your first feature film? That is such a big deal and it must have taken a lot of work. So can you walk us through what that was like for you? So, okay, um, making movies since I was a teenager, short, short films. Um, like a documentary about my high school's jazz band going to play at Yoshi's in Oakland back in the day, um, which was fun. Cool. Um, yeah. Or, you know, just little films that I would make with my friends, very short narratives, music videos, really into those. You know, I always wanted to make a feature movie. In fact, I want to make lots of features. <laughs> and, um, you know, the issue is, is money. Um, I went into the mental health field. So that was what I pursued professionally. But I kept making films and writing or books, all sorts of things. About, I want to say 2017, got to the point financially where I could like save some money, basically. <laughs> and I was getting more work in the mental health field. I was working a lot. I was kind of like, well, you know, what am I going to do with this money? I'm, I'm like working so hard. I happened to read about this thing called micro-budget filmmaking. And specifically, the example I looked at was this movie called Frisky by uh, Claudia Pickering, who's very nice. She reached out to me afterwards, um, after my movie uh, came out. And uh, she filmed Frisky in San Francisco, I think in like 2016, maybe, for $5,000. And it was good. Wow, that's nothing. I know, it's nothing. And she filmed in like two weeks and, and it, it it was good. She did a good job. Um, and the movie went on to festivals and got some, some, some buzz. I was like really interested in how she did that. And I was like, I think I can save $5,000 if she could. And I, so I was just like studying the film. I was listening to every podcast she was on. I was like, I want to just do this. And she's in San Francisco, super expensive San Francisco, like me. I ended up saving or working and saving $10,000 over about a year. And I had this plan that with $10,000, I was going to make my first feature. I was going to write it and direct it and produce it. 
I wrote a few different scripts that year. I knew that I had to write a script that was like going to be able to be filmed on $10,000. And so the first two scripts I wrote, they were a little bit too big in, in scope. So I was like, I'm going to have to. And then I just had this idea for the movie that became I Can't Sleep, which is my first feature movie. And uh, yeah, I like wrote the script. It didn't take too long, actually. It was kind of like two different ideas that I'd had in my head for years and years that just kind of combined to make this movie. And I feel I figured, you know, okay, like what are the locations I have access to? To my apartment, I have access to my boyfriend's store, and I could film there. My aunt gave her permission for me to film at her house too. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And um, so I just went about, once I finished and rewrote and rewrote the script, I started hiring cast and um, auditioning. I just kind of did it, you know, I, and I knew that this was going to be a big learning experience for me because I'd never made a film on this, this scope. And it was still very small. And I was like, if, if I want to be a filmmaker, I'm going to have to make films because I, and, and I really do think that's the only way at least with film, um, you have to just go out and do it. Like you can sit in the classroom and talk about film all the time. And yeah, I, I took film theory classes in college. I, you know, I took screenwriting. I, I was very much into it, but I was like, the only way that I'm gonna learn how to be a filmmaker is making films, like, you know, bigger films now. I think I'm like ready after making small films for a long time. So, so I did it, it was not easy. <laughs> it was very hard. All in all, um, filmed about a total, I want to say, of like 12 days, you know, but I, I, I finished it. We finished it. I brought on my friend, the Holographic Children, a singer-songwriter, um, to do the score. You know, music's really important to me. And he did a great job. And then the movie was done suddenly. Suddenly I, I had a finished feature film. It was crazy. Wow. <laughs> it was crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really amazing. It was kind of unreal. It was like, I remember it was October 2020 by the time the film, like I like, got the film it was complete. And I was like, great, I can start submitting to festivals. And so I did and um, we got into a bunch of festivals and then it um, won some awards, which was really cool. It was during oh, the cool. pandemic. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, you yeah, know, it, it, it was great. It was like, you know, when I was struggling to make the film and dealing with setbacks and all that stuff, you know, it's kind of like when you're making it, you're like, I don't know how this is going to pan out if like anything's going to happen with this, you know, and that's kind of how it is with a lot of undertakings that we do. And But I'm very happy with how, you know, finishing it for one thing. And then also that it got into festivals and that, you know, it like won awards and then, you know, having, having random people who I don't know, be like, oh, I watched your film at this festival is really good. And da, 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 you know, so like, like, like that was really cool. So I, I think I, you know, I, I couldn't have expected better. And, and it was a learning experience. You know, I learned so much from that experience and, um, so yeah, so now I'm working on my next film. I'm working on the script. This one will be eleven thousand. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> how much I can, you know, I can save. Um, or you know, I might ask for money or try to get get money somehow. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to have a bigger budget, but um, <laughs> I've, I I want to film it at the end of. Ideally, at the end of this year, although that's going to be coming up in like tomorrow. So, but maybe early 2023. And um, I just want to keep making films. And I also write and um, 
I'm gonna release a, a, a tiny book. I'm into writing, you know, um, really small, small books. I'm gonna release a tiny book in a couple weeks, um, just of random short vignettes that I've written a collection. Cool. That is awesome. Please let us know when that book is out and we'll be show we'll be sure to share it around. Gina and Stuart, thank you both so much for being on the show. It's been such a great conversation. Most definitely. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure talking to both of you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me as well. And that's it for this episode of Proud Stutter. This episode of Proud Stutter was produced and edited by me, Maya Chupkov. Our music was composed by Augusto Denise and our artwork by Mara Ezekiel and Noah Chupkov. If you have an idea or want to be part of a future episode, visit us at www.proudstutter.com. And if you like the show, you can leave us a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. Want to leave us a voicemail? Check out our show notes for the, the number to call in. More importantly, Tell your friends to listen too. Until we meet again, thanks for listening. Be proud and be you.